the past three and a half years have been unforgettable. Oh, tell me about it, lady. Are you kidding me? Jesus. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Oh, no, it is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for your listening convenience on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. (sighs) Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us because, yep, once again, we are shuffling around the entire show, tossing stuff out, trying to figure out what we actually have time to cover because all of it, All of it underscores the importance of what I hope to talk about with my guest coming up today regarding still more disturbing concerns about the upcoming presidential election, specifically in Georgia, but more generally for the entire country when it comes to the use of vote-by-mail ballots and the alarming rate at which they are rejected by election officials and, disproportionately so, with mail-in ballots from African-American and other minority voters. A new analysis from the Peach State today is, uh, well, quite disturbing, not just for Georgia, but for the entire country. We will get to that in a moment. But as with yesterday's show, Desi Doyen, we began with the dilemma, as you will recall, of which is scarier and more dangerous and destructive to the American people. A major potentially catastrophic Category 4 storm coming ashore on the Gulf Coast or Donald Trump's Republican convention and the prospect that he could win for more years. (laughs) Well, you know, we're talking about short-term and long-term risks here, so both can be just as devastating. Yes, it is a close call, but you're right. The more immediate threat today is probably Hurricane Laura, so we will start there. 
And you know it's a grave threat to the nation because as more than half a million Americans are right now being told to evacuate from where they live while trying to avoid a deadly contagious virus as they do at the same time. And as the coronavirus is still very much strong and present in Texas and Louisiana, where Laura is now targeted to make landfall, as all of that's going on, the president of the United States offered his steady guidance and calm reassurance (laughs) to millions of Americans in harm's way today by tweeting just before noon, quote, Just in, Chinese state media and leaders of China want Biden to win, quote, the U.S. election. If this happened, which it won't, China would own our country and our record-setting stock markets would literally crash, in all caps. I'm sure that was reassuring to those in the path of the latest monster storm in an already record Atlantic uh, hurricane season. Why, by the way, Trump puts the U.S. election in quotation marks in his tweet. I will not bother to entertain that right now. But, uh, yeah, Laura strengthened Wednesday into a menacing Category 4 hurricane, raising fears of a 20-foot storm surge that forecasters say would be, quote, unsurvivable and capable of sinking entire communities. Authorities implored coastal residents of Texas and Louisiana to evacuate and worried that not enough have so far fled. Since we last discussed the storm on this show 24 hours ago, it has grown nearly 70 percent in power, according to the National Hurricane Center, which is now describing Laura as, quote, extremely dangerous after drawing energy from very warm Gulf of Mexico waters. And why do we have warm uh, Gulf of Mexico waters, Desi <laughs> Because of man-made climate change. Yes. And we also have more frequent rapid intensification like this, giving people very little time to prepare. Yeah, all of these hurricanes really that have popped up this year have sort of come out of nowhere uh, suddenly with very little warning. Uh, as we go to air now, the uh, system is on track to arrive late Wednesday, early Thursday, as the most powerful hurricane to strike the U.S. so far this year. The National Hurricane Center kept raising its estimate of Laura's storm surge from 10 feet a couple of days ago to now twice that, which uh, forecasters say will be especially deadly. Category 4 hurricane can cause damage so catastrophic that power outages may last for months in places and wide areas could be uninhabitable for weeks or months, according to the National Weather Service, in a dire warning that recalls the one that they issued just before Hurricane Katrina came ashore in Louisiana. 15 years ago this week. Yep. And I remember being on air uh, as that warning came in and needing to take a break before I read it on air just to make sure it was real because it sounded so dire. Now we seem to be getting these uh, similar warnings uh, with some frequency over these past 15 years for some odd reason. The threat of such devastation posed a new disaster relief challenge for a government already straining to deal with the coronavirus pandemic in the largest U.S. evacuation uh, during this pandemic era. More than half a million people have been ordered to flee from their homes near the Texas-Louisiana state line, where forecasters said storm surge topped by waves could submerge entire towns. Texas has been asking people to evacuate to hotels 
when and where possible to make social distancing easier in evacuation shelters. However, Austin, Texas, says they have run out of free hotel rooms for evacuees. They're now telling people to uh, flee to a shelter nearly 200 miles to the north. The National Weather Service's warnings are being issued for 200 miles inland, given the size and ferocity of this storm. Louisiana Governor Edward, uh, 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 John Bell Edwards lamented that the uh, impending storm meant suspension of community testing for COVID-19. Just as uh, folks are going back to elementary and secondary schools in Louisiana, and as students are returning to college campuses, he said, we're basically going blind this week. We will have no idea what the virus is looking like. The storm has also forced evacuations from an area of the state where there has has been a very high rate of positive tests of late. But those apparently will now have to stop. It's not only Louisiana and Texas, by the way, that will be affected by Laura. It is expected to dump massive rainfall as it moves inland, cause wide for, uh, widespread flash flooding far away from the coast in uh, states like Arkansas, where a flash flood warning has been issued. A watch, I should say, has been issued in Arkansas. And forecasters say heavy rainfall could arrive by Friday in parts of Missouri, take cover mom, Tennessee, Kentucky, and it, that this storm is so powerful that it is expected to become a tropical storm again once it reaches the Atlantic Ocean, potentially menacing the Northeast. This is a big storm, a dangerous storm, a very bad storm. Uh, Laura closed in on the U.S. after killing nearly two dozen people already in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, where it knocked out power and caused intense flooding. And now I would normally move at this point to night two of the RNC here, but we've got still more breaking news that is proving to be much more important than the RNC right now, even if it underscores yet again the importance of our upcoming elections in 69 days, but who is counting, and the danger of Donald Trump's potential re-election, as the first two nights of the RNC were frequently focused on worshipping law enforcement officers, despite Trump's own criminal record, by the way, and working to terrify Americans about riots in the streets under Joe Biden, by showing, you know, video of riots in the streets under Donald Trump. Well, this breaking uh, just before air, a white 17-year-old police admirer, as AP calls him, was arrested on Wednesday after two people were shot to death during a third straight night of protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the police shooting of a black man, Jacob, uh, Jacob Blake, by a white police officer as the man, Jacob Blake, was walking away from the police and his three children were in the car witnessing all of it. Blake's spokesperson, who said it will be a miracle if he ever walks again, said Blake was, um, quote, helping to de-escalate a domestic, a domestic incident when the officers shot him from behind. The video of the cops uh, shooting Blake justifiably, uh, as everyone I'm sure has seen by now, have sparked outrage uh, over the weekend. It led to uh, three nights so far of protests in Kenosha, during which Tuesday night's shootings occurred by, yes, another white guy protesting the protesters. 
Kyle Rittenhouse of Antioch, Illinois, the alleged shooter at the protests on Tuesday night, was taken into custody in Illinois on suspicion of first-degree intentional homicide. Antioch's about 15 miles from Kenosha, just across the border. Two people were killed on Tuesday. A third was wounded in an attack apparently carried out by a young white man who was caught on cell phone video opening fire in the middle of the street with a semi-automatic rifle. The gunman could be heard saying at one point, I just killed somebody during a rampage that erupted just before midnight. In the wake of the killings, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers said in a statement, quote, I again ask those who choose to exercise their First Amendment rights to do so peacefully and safely, as so many did last night. I also ask the individuals who are not there to exercise those rights to please stay home and let local first responders, law enforcement and members of the Wisconsin National Guard do their jobs. We were all chanting Black Lives Matter at the gas station, and then we heard boom, boom. 19-year-old protester Devin Scott told the Chicago Tribune, and then this guy with this huge gun runs by us in the middle of the street, and people are yelling, he shot someone, he shot someone, and everyone is trying to fight the guy, chasing him, and then he started shooting again. Witness accounts and video show that the shootings took place in two stages. First, the gunman shot someone at a car lot, then jogged away, stumbled, fell in the street, and opened fire again as members of the crowd closed in on him. One witness said that when the gunman stumbled, two people jumped onto him and there was a struggle for control of his rifle. And at that point, during the struggle, he just began to fire multiple rounds. The rifle was being jerked around in all directions while it was being fired, the witness said. Sam Dirks uh, from Milwaukee, a uh, 22-year-old, said he had seen the suspected gunman earlier in the night. He was yelling at some of the protesters. He said he was definitely, quote, very agitated, pacing around, just pointing his gun in general. Hey, by the way, let me take this moment to thank the NRA for fighting for these gun rights that uh, people like Kyle Rittenhouse enjoy to help keep us safe. Because, you know, nothing stops a bad guy with a gun better than a good guy with a gun. Of course, uh, there were apparently no good guys with the gun. There was just uh, this guy who decided to start shooting into the crowd randomly and killing people at a lawful, peaceful protest. And it's worse. According to video footage, police apparently let the young man responsible for the shootings walk past them with the rifle over his shoulder with his hands in the air as members of the crowd were yelling for him to be arrested because he had shot people. As for why the gunman was allowed to leave... Sheriff David Beth portrayed a chaotic, high-stress scene with screaming and chanting and people running all over the place. Conditions that he said can cause, quote, tunnel vision among law officers. Tunnel vision, yes, that apparently leads them to ignore a young white guy with an assault rifle and his hands up with others pointing to him and saying, he's the shooter. Would, would the cops have just walked past him if it was a black man with an, assight, an assault rifle and his hands up and people saying he just shot someone? Now, Rittenhouse is identified in court papers, apparently, as a lifeguard at the YMCA in uh, Illinois. Much of Rittenhouse's, Rittenhouse's uh, Facebook page, however, is devoted to praising law enforcement. References to Blue Lives Matter. 
He can also be seen holding an assault rifle. Other photos include those of badges of various law enforcement agencies. One photo posted by his mom, he's uh, wearing what appears to be a blue law enforcement uniform and a state trooper hat. The sheriff told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that armed vigilantes have been patrolling Kenosha streets in recent nights. Video taken before the shooting shows police tossing bottled water from an armored vehicle to what appear to be armed civilians walking in the streets, and one of them appears to be the gunman. An officer is overheard uh, saying to that group over a loudspeaker, we appreciate you being here. Wisconsin Governor Lieutenant uh, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who is black, said in an interview with the news program Democracy Now that the shootings were not surprising and that uh, white militias have been ignored for too long. How many times across this country do you see armed gunmen protesting, walking into state capitals? He said, and everybody just thinks it's okay. Lieutenant Governor Barnes said people treat that like it's some kind of normal activity that people are walking around with assault rifles in Wisconsin. It should be noted it is legal for people 18 years of age and over to openly carry a gun. No license is required. Once again, thank you, NRA. And thank you, Donald Trump, for standing up for the right to carry a goddamn assault rifle through the streets And thanks, by the way, to the cops in Kenosha for uh, taking care of those armed vigilantes. Take a quick break here. And uh, as uh, well, it's actually appropriate. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about night two of the Republican National Convention. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yeah, the cult of personality, that can only mean one thing. Our theme song for this year's Republican National Convention. (laughs) Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All of today's breaking news, however, means I'm going to have to toss out most of my planned coverage of the second offensive night of the RNC. I can hear the applause from here. (laughs) You're welcome. Night two, uh, the administration flouted the rule of law numerous times, used a presidential pardon as a political reality show reveal. Using They used government officials, including Marines and the acting head of Homeland Security, who, by the way, is in his position illegally, according to the inspector general, for a naturalization ceremony at the White House. They used taxpayer-funded, uh, a, a taxpayer-funded trip to Israel for a dramatic backdrop for the Secretary of State of the United States to give a political speech at the party's convention. And they used the White House itself. For the first time, as a dramatic backdrop for a convention speech by the First Lady of the United States, not to mention the unlawful use of the presidential seal 
in violation of 18 U.S. Code Section 713, prohibiting the use of the presidential seal as part of telecasts that convey a, quote, false impression or of sponsorship or approval by the government of the United States. All of that in order to continue their message that Donald Trump, who has been impeached for abuse of power and obstruction of justice, uh, obstruction of Congress, and has been the is the target of several law enforcement investigations for criminal bank and tax fraud, among other things. Donald Trump is actually the law and order president. Go figure. I will try to get to a bit of that. But frankly, as we go to air, news is now just coming in that the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks franchise is boycotting today's NBA playoff game in protest of the police shooting of Jacob Blake. And now we're learning other teams uh, who were considering doing the same have apparently decided to do so because the NBA has canceled the playoffs entirely as the team said, no, we are standing down. With that in mind, perhaps the best coverage that I can offer of the Republican National Convention to date is found in these remarks yesterday by L.A. Clippers coach Doc Rivers. What stands out to me is um, just just watching the Republican convention and this they're spewing this fear, right? Like all you hear Donald Trump and all of them talking about fear. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, we're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. Um, we've been hung. We've been shot. And all you do is keep hearing about fear. It's, it's amazing to me why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. And it's just, it's really so sad. Uh, but we got to demand better. Like we got, you know, it's, it's funny. We protest and they send riot guards, right? Uh, they send people in riot outfits. They go to Michigan with guns and they're spitting on cops. And nothing happens. And how dare the Republicans talk about fear? All we're asking is you live up to the Constitution. That's all we're asking for everybody, for everyone. L.A. Clippers coach Doc Rivers uh, on Tuesday after being asked about the Republican National Convention. And how's that going so far? With that in mind, uh, yes, this story is part of night two of the RNC. New York Attorney General Letitia James announced on Monday that her office has filed a lawsuit to compel the Trump Organization to comply with subpoenas related to an investigation into whether President Trump and his company improperly inflated the value of its assets on financial statements. James said in a statement on Monday, I took action to force the Trump Organization and specifically Executive Vice President Eric Trump to comply with my office's ongoing investigation into its financial dealings. 
For months, the Trump Organization has failed to fully comply with our subpoenas in this investigation. She said they're seeking thousands of documents and testimony from multiple witnesses, including Eric Trump, who was, she says, intimately involved in one or more of the transactions under review. The Trump Organization, however, has stalled, withheld documents and instructed witnesses, including Eric Trump, to refuse to answer questions under oath. Well, apparently, Eric Trump is refusing to testify and violating the law by refusing to show up in response to a subpoena to declare, if he wants, his Fifth Amendment right to refuse to incriminate himself. He has the right to do so, but he can't just not show up. He can't just not answer the subpoena at all. He's got to show up and invoke the fifth in person if that's what he wishes to do. If Trump or his sons or his company are eventually charged with something here, I will note a presidential pardon will not get any of them off the hook. These are state charges, not federal charges, and uh, the president of the United States has uh, no pardon power over state charges. So with that said, and the day after day one of the RNC featured a man and woman under felony indictment in St. Louis for brandishing weapons at peaceful protesters. The day after that, Eric Trump, who was now facing a lawsuit by the New York Attorney General for refusing to answer a lawful criminal subpoena, Eric Trump was a featured speaker on day two of the RNC. And if that wasn't hypocritical enough, he was the featured speaker just after former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi who herself dropped an investigation into the Donald uh, Trump uh, fraudulent Trump University scheme after she received a donation from Donald Trump, who was later to forced to pay some twenty five million dollars in settlements because his Trump University was a fraud. He paid those settlements after he became president. Well, Bondi, with a straight face, night two of the RNC tried to tell us about corruption by Joe Biden's family. Really? Yes, really. You can't make this stuff up. She accused his son of, well, essentially nepotism, no actual crimes as far as I could tell. And she said, why should there be one rule of law for the elite and another for everyone else in America? What world was she speaking from? So on the night that Bondi accused Biden of nepotism, Donald Trump had, as the very next speaker, his own son, who was facing a lawsuit by the New York State Attorney General, and that was after Donald Trump's daughter Tiffany spoke earlier and his wife Melania gave the keynote speech at the end of the night. So you know how much he hates nepotism. So they know, they know about the rule of law. They know about the hypocrisy. They just do not care and they want to flaunt the fact that they don't care by using taxpayer property like the White House, Taxpayer-funded trips like uh, for the Secretary of State to make a political statement from Jerusalem at the convention. Do state business like pardons and naturalization ceremonies at the White House for a partisan political purpose during the national convention, all while declaring Donald Trump, of all people, to be the president of law and order. It was, I think, why MSNBC's Nicole, Nicole Wallace best described it as the audacity of the grift. That is Donald Trump. That's the entire Trump family. That's now the entire Republican Party. They are grifters all. So it was another creepy night that we'll have to catch up on on uh, another day, perhaps, if there's time 
a creepy night, by the way, of COVID denial as Larry Kudlow was pretending that the COVID crisis is over. It was bad, he said, but it's over. And so that's what we got. Another creepy night plus actual crimes in front of the country. Yes, the audacity of the grift, which is why it is more important than ever that we hold an election on November 3rd in which everyone can participate and we can all know that all of our votes were counted as cast. And that's why we got to head back to Georgia right now, where their election, along with all of ours, faces a very serious threat right now. Klima Kondoker of allvotingislocal.org joins us next with yet another disturbing revelation regarding elections in the state of Georgia and, yes, everywhere else today. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, we are back to Georgia today, where I know we have spent an inordinate, some uh, some might say uh, appropriately disproportionate amount of time focusing on one of the most troubled, some would argue purposely troubled, voting systems in the nation. A federal judge back in 2018 found that the state's old, unverifiable touchscreen voting systems were flawed, outdated, insecure, and easily hacked. And she ordered the Peach State to decertify all of them after that year's elections. And after nearly 20 years of use at the polls and countless questions about the veracity of various election results reported by them over that time. They were overseen at the time by then-Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who supported those unverifiable touchscreen voting systems and lied about their vulnerability, even after researchers discovered state voter data and system passwords just sitting online for simple download by anyone with no password protection at all prior to the 2016 presidential election in the state back when many Democrats thought it possible that uh, that they could finally flip the state of Georgia from red to blue. But in 2018, after a contentious and controversial gubernatorial election that year, Brian Kemp became governor, overseeing his own election that year as secretary of state in a very close race, which Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams still believes was unfair following mass voter purges by Kemp, long lines at the polls and broken machines and not enough of them in many minority precincts. At the same time, absentee ballots were also rejected at higher rates in heavily black jurisdictions. In 2018, as Kemp oversaw his own election to become governor, another hard-right Republican, Brad Raffensperger, took over as Secretary of State 
And as per the federal court order, he replaced all of the state's voting systems. But instead of moving to a cheaper, simpler, and verifiable hand-marked paper ballot system for the state, Raffensperger insisted that every county move to a new $100 million unverifiable touchscreen voting system again, which, along with the electronic poll book systems it required, You'll be shocked to know it failed in its first several outings, again, largely in African-American districts in the state. That after at least one county board of election had it attempted to move instead to a verifiable hand-marked paper ballot system, but was actually threatened by a lawsuit from the secretary of state if they did not fall in line and go with the unverifiable touchscreens instead. Those systems are still being challenged in federal court by our friends at the Coalition for Good Governance there. Moreover, as we reported, damn nearly exclusively on this program following this year's June primaries in Georgia, it was also discovered that the new digital optical scan computers made by the Canadian-based firm Dominion Voting that are used to tally the actually verifiable hand-marked paper absentee ballots in the state, those systems were also dropping, just not even bothering to count perfectly legitimate votes on many of those ballots because the system, we have since learned, has a setting allowing administrators or, yes, company officials from Dominion or, yes, hackers, to determine how sensitive or not the optical scan machines are in reading various types of hand-marked selections on the ballot. Then, of course, there are other still unanswered anomalies that we've reported over recent years in Georgia, such as the lieutenant governor's race from back in 2018. That's the same year that Stacey Abrams, who would have been the nation's first female African-American governor had she been named the winner, same year that she was on the ballot. Well, that same year, for still unknown reasons, the Coalition of Good Governance discovered that some 125,000 votes, largely from black voters, were missing entirely from the results. Finding precincts in which races much further down the ballot, such as for insurance commissioner, received more votes inexpl inexplicably than the lieutenant governor's race did, but only in certain black precincts and only on votes cast at the polls, not on vote-by-mail ballots from those very same precincts. That anomaly, to my knowledge, has never been explained, even as black voters in Georgia continue to bear the brunt of the voter suppression that seems to affect election after election after election, year after year after year in the state. And now... In 2020, with the necessary expansion of vote-by-mail voting amid the coronavirus pandemic, guess what? Once again, according to newly analyzed data, it seems that African-American voters are once again getting the short end of the stick in Georgia for some reason. Data from the June primaries this year in three Georgia counties reveals how black voters can be underrepresented among those seeking to vote by mail and yet overrepresented among those who have their mail ballots rejected. TPM's Tierney Sneed reported on the new analysis this week. The analysis of Chatham, Gwinnett, and Cobb County by the uh, Georgia chapter of All Voting is Local reinforced uh, concerns about racial disparities in vote-by-mail as its use has surged during the pandemic. 
in all three of those counties, rejected ballots cast by black voters made up a disproportionately large share of total absentee ballot rejections when compared to their share of absentee requests. There were similar, if less extreme, trends found for Hispanic and Asian voters in each of the counties that the group looked at. In Cobb County, for example, a suburb of Atlanta, the gap between black voters' share of absentee requests and their share of rejected ballots was 14 percentage points. Black voters submitted 24 percent of absentee ballot requests received by the county, but saw their ballots uh, make up a stunning 38 percent of those that were later rejected by the county. Black voters made up 36 percent of those requesting to vote in Chatham County, home to Savannah, but 44 percent of ballots rejected were cast by black voters, according to the analysis. In Gwinnett County, another county just outside of Atlanta, and another that will be key to Democrats' hopes of finally flipping the state from red to blue in the presidential election, as is thought possible this year, not to mention flipping one or two of the two U.S. Senate seats on the ballot uh, in the Peach State this year. In Gwinnett County, black voters made up 32 percent of voters whose ballots were rejected, while only 29 percent of absentee requests came from them. So what explains this latest disparity, uh, this disparity in the high rate of rejection of absentee ballots from black voters in several of Georgia's heavily black counties, as well as disproportionate rates of rejection from Hispanic and Asian voters as well? Joining us now for insight on this new analysis is Aklima Kondoker. She is the Georgia State Director for AllVotingIsLocal.org. That's a project of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, the nation's oldest and largest civil rights coalition focused on fighting discriminatory barriers to voting before they happen. Now, there's an idea. And, of course, they hope to uh, build, according to their website, a democracy that works for all of us. Well, good luck doing that in Georgia. Prior to joining the campaign, Klima worked as a staff attorney and senior manager for the Voting Access Project at the ACLU of Georgia. Welcome to the broadcast, Klima. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before we uh, get to the specifics of your new analysis, I tried to sort of summarize years of our coverage, uh, decades actually in some cases there in my summary. Did I either miss anything noteworthy uh, in that description or, or did I get any points egregiously wrong since I know you've been there for much of it in Georgia? <laughs> Not at all. I think you are spot on. I think what is underneath everything that you just analyzed and expressed in your intro is the structural or institutional racism that undercuts everything in our election system. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what frames most of the issues that you, you, you so very clearly laid out there at the beginning. Yeah, you know, when I looked over uh, sort of all of the various problems we've covered, each one of them seems to have an element of affecting uh, minority voters, uh, more so than white voters, and usually uh, black voters in particular. So the the first, I guess, the big question, what explains, if anything so far, the disparity that you found in these rejected absentee vote-by-mail ballots among minority, again, predominantly African-American voters in at least three of those uh, three counties that all voting is local had uh, analyzed? Do we have any explanation for the disparity yet? 
Well, like most disparities and most issues that stem from institutional racism, there is no clear pathway to the source. Over decades, over centuries, over so many years of policy that have pushed people of color out of the process, it becomes more and more difficult to trace where this comes from. Mm. But we understand that this is something that is in the fabric of the way that we even think about our elections processes. So what I think that's significant about these three counties is that that they have very diverse communities within them. Mm -hmm. And so we do know that we have a high Asian community um, within these counties, as well as high Hispanic communities and high black communities. So this is something that I think is traceable. Being able to look at the people that represent these communities, we understand that there is a link between being black or brown or being non-white and being underneath institutional racism and having those additional barriers to the ballot. I think it's clear that Jim Crow laws have long represented active and public mastery of civic devices to exclude voters of color Mm. under the guise of uniform policy. And I do think that the remnants of those policies is what we are seeing here that have disenfranchised so many black and brown voters across the state. Now, the rejections, as I understand it, when we talk about the uh, ballots that were rejected by the the counties and never counted, were due to well, at least two things, uh, both uh, perceived signature mismatches and missed deadlines, ballots that came in after Election Day, since Georgia still mandates that all votes arrive at county headquarters by the close of polls on Election Day, apparently being postmarked by Election Day, but arriving afterwards is still not enough in Georgia. I'm correct on that uh, and their deadlines there? Correct. So a, a person does have to still have their ballot come in received on election day in order for it to count, unfortunately. Mm. And what's more useful for voters, especially voting during a pandemic, is to have more latitude to be able to submit their ballots in on time, especially because Georgia has seen so many changes in our elections. Our primaries were moved several times. We're previewing these brand new Dominion machines. Mm -hmm. The state of Georgia only had mere months to preview these machines and test these machines. When we know where we've seen success with these machines in other states like Colorado, it's taken years to do that work. So it is really unreasonable to require for voters during a pandemic Mm. while using these machines with all of Mm. these critical elections changes to have that tiny slither, that that immovable window for them to send in their absentee ballots or their ballots in general, rather. So I, I do think that we have to have a change in how we think about our election dates and how we process our elections because we are going to leave so many people out of the process, and in particular, black and brown voters who have always been the subject of disenfranchisement in our country, they're going to be most harmed by our our reluctance to make these critical changes. Now, I understand there's a pending lawsuit to try to extend the deadline in uh, Georgia right now, not to extend the deadline. They would still have to uh, be postmarked by Election Day, but to allow ballots to come in in the days following the election, which I would think would be particularly important now, given the slowdowns at the Postal Service under Trump's new Postmaster General is that lawsuit still moving forward in the state? My understanding is that it still is. Um, All voting is local is not on that lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But yes, my understanding is they're still moving forward with that lawsuit because it's so very critical that voters have increased access 
that voters have an increased opportunity. And I think it's clear um, when we look at what the state election board has recently passed as far as um, requiring or rather allowing drop boxes right. at the county level so that people have this alternative way to get their ballot in. Right. So really, it's unreasonable for the state to say, you know, we're going to allow drop boxes. Raffensperger sent everybody an, uh, an absentee ballot application back in June to do all of these things, but then not to extend critical deadlines not to put that proper infrastructure in place for timely processing. We need to have both. When you do one without the other, installing, uh, providing for the installation of drop boxes, but no comprehensive guidance and no effective date changes, then we are going to see more and more issues come up leading up to the November general. And I do want to get into that a little bit uh, with you, but I sort of want to uh, figure out before we move to look forward, I kind of still trying to figure out what happened in the past uh, on this uh, the uh, disproportionate rejection rates here from the June primary. There was there was a lawsuit filed, I think it was in 2016, I believe, in Gwinnett County uh, when it appeared that the majority of absentee ballots being rejected had come from that one county, which, if I recall, was not notifying voters when there was a missing signature or a perceived mismatch signature was not letting them know, letting the voters know to allow them to come in and cure the deficiency. The judge, if I'm remembering correctly, ordered the county to notify voters before throwing out the uh, the ballots entirely to let them do that, to let them come in and cure the ballot. Is that now being done across the state? And if so, why were there still so many rejected uh, ballots, particularly in black communities? So right now that should be done. So right now the curing process should be immediate. It should allow for at least three days post-election for people to cure any issues. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there is no clear uniformity as there is no mandate from the Secretary of State's office to ensure that each county is doing that. Instead, what the Secretary of State's office has offered is, here is what the law says. You all make sure you do the right thing. However, what the Secretary of State's office has not provided to these county offices is additional resources to make sure that they can actually process ballots as they come in, that they can actually reach out to people in a timely fashion to alert them about issues as they come up immediately. Unfortunately, it appears that it is still at the discretion of the county elections offices at the county level to determine and decide when to begin processing. They do not have to begin processing anything to then figure out what the cure timeline would be for the voter mm -hmm. until they are just able to. We saw that in Fulton County with the absentee ballots that they received, that they had a backlog of absentee ballots that were never processed, which means that that then delayed any potential curing that any voter may be able to do with those absentee ballots. You, they were so in, you said they were never processed in Fulton County? They were eventually processed. They were not processed in a timely fashion uh -huh. in Fulton County. Okay. So the issue I think that happens in Gwinnett is we know that Gwinnett is a very diverse county. We know that we have a lot of Asian communities there. We know that we have a lot of people that speak other languages in Gwinnett. So we understand that if there are ballots that are in Gwinnett and there are signature match issues, we know that people who are of Asian American descent, of Hispanic descent from other communities are, are more easily going to be pushed out of the process because they have a different understanding of the process, because most of them speak other languages and are from other communities. So it is not surprising that if they do not adjust the system 
to account for the people that are going to use the system, Mm -hmm. people who may speak another language, people who may not be familiar with the system, a big, robust community that may require more staffing in order to properly process issues as they come in, that more issues are going to slip through, are not going to be caught, and what that means is that votes are not going to be counted. I see that in uh, TPM's uh, coverage, Klima Kondokar, we, they uh, received a comment from the Cobb County Director of Elections, Janine Eveler, who said that her own statistics did not include racial breakdowns of rejected ballots, so she couldn't comment on that part specifically. But she said that voters had plenty of time to return their ballot or to resol- resolve any signature issues. If so, is there any particular reason why they were not resolved more in uh, the black uh, communities than elsewhere? And what has your group uh, otherwise heard back from uh, from her or the other counties about uh, the findings of your analysis? Certainly. So this idea of plenty of time is a very flimsy concept. Because if we are not appropriately adjusting our dates for all of the delays that we've seen in the cycle, it just is not enough time. It is not plenty of time. And as I had mentioned earlier, we saw so many delays from our primary day that just continued forward. We went ahead and adopted a new Dropbox rule. Our Secretary of State sent out act, sent out absentee um, ballot applications to everyone. There was not enough time to effectively send absentee ballots to everyone, receive them, process them on time, allow for that cure period, and then receive them again to make sure that everything would be working smoothly for our voters. So unfortunately, there there is not enough time. Mm. And then on top of it, there aren't enough resources at the county level. So what we've heard overwhelmingly is that there are not enough poll workers, there aren't enough people that are designated to process absentee ballots or to or to process those applications, that there is a, a huge need for us to have more poll workers and more people working at our at the county level to ensure that everything is happening in a timely fashion. So I would say that what even if a voter did everything right to send their materials in on time, if they are not properly staffed up then it doesn't matter whether they've done that on time. And, and I think that this is a very, this is a uniform talking point that we've heard from many of our elections offices, that notion that, well, you know, voters ought to get it in on time. Voters should know better. I just, I can't let go of the fact that institutional racism, this idea that we are going to use old laws and policies to continue to inform how we run our elections is still something that's very persistent and pervasive in our system. We cannot cleave ourselves from that simply by saying, oh, those things are not legal anymore. I think we are still seeing the remnants of that. And I think it becomes clear in those particular communities because we have so many people of color. We have so many people that are working class immigrants in those communities. And so to have a standard that has naturally always been catered towards those who are in power, who have always um, been able to enjoy the right to vote in a very open and accessible way, to think that that can somehow um, be transferred to those that those among us who have been 
suppressed by our system of elections is, is crazy. So something needed to change yeah. this year, and it didn't. Well, and of course, uh, at the federal level, uh, election officials across the country have been asking have been asking for more money to to run their elections during this pandemic. And uh, both the White House and Mitch McConnell and the Senate have blocked funding that election officials around the country have asked for. Uh, that would have been very useful to, you know, have more uh, people able to contact voters when there was a problem with their ballot in Georgia and in all of the other states. Of course, in Georgia, if Raffensperger hadn't spent a hundred million dollars, actually, I think it was like one hundred and thirteen million dollars on those uh, crappy touchscreen machines, he would have had about half of that money at least to use to help voters here. But I think it was not a mistake that he chose to go with the machines rather than the people, I guess. Uh, Aklima, you focused on three counties in particular. Uh, Would you expect to find similar disparities if you uh, analyzed uh, other counties around the state? And would you expect to find similar disparities in other states? Or is this something that is unique to Georgia. I don't think that this is unique to Georgia. And let me say this, we, we analyzed those three counties, but I imagine that we would see something very similar if we were to look at other counties. In particular, if we were to look at counties that have strong black and brown communities among them. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't surprising. And this is likely something that we would see nationwide because I, I, I am committed to this belief that it is institutional and structural racism that has led to the wealth of the problems that we are seeing in our elections. Mm-hmm. There's no way to cleave the two, yeah. because we have a clear system that has always worked for one and not the other. And about the money that we had, we could have clearly used the bulk of the money that was used for these really expensive machines to help improve this fractured system that we have in Georgia. We need a lot of help with our elections. These new machines... These are not the help that we need. <laughs> no, they're this is not. A great way, this is a great way for the Secretary of State's office to reveal this Secure the Vote initiative to appear as though, you know, they've been doing everything this entire time and let's ignore what we saw in 2016 and in other years. Let's go ahead and pretend that we are doing everything in our power at least on its face, at mm-hmm. least let it appear as though we are willing and working to change the system, when in actuality, what we need for this system, we need to have uh, more poll workers available, mm-hmm. we need to have better in training available for our workers, but we also need to have mandates. We need to have a clear, streamlined system for all counties to follow. We have 159 counties in the state. It is unreasonable for the Secretary of State's office to just make a blanketed allowance for counties to kind of decide how they want to run their elections. And even though the Secretary of State's office is the one responsible for ensuring that all protocol is followed and that uniformity is, is, is guaranteed throughout, his office is not doing that. Instead, we hear them passing the buck to the voters that are sending in things on, uh, late or are not understanding a process because the process is very difficult to understand to begin with. And then we hear the blame passed to the counties. Oh, well, the counties didn't do this. They should have asked for uh, you know these other resources they don't have. And if it does boil down to money, because one of the things that have, has now come back around is this grant program where the Secretary of State's office has now allowed counties to apply for grants for funding. But I believe the funding is something like $3,000 maximum. Oh, man. That is not enough 
to, to for the critical changes that we need in our elections yeah. for them to function equally and effectively for all of our voters. Yeah, it's interesting. He sh- he sure is uh, strict when it comes to uh, requiring counties to do certain things, like take these crappy Rube Goldberg touchscreen voting systems. <laughs> uh, even when you know counties say no, we prefer not. We would like to go with handmarked paper ballots. He's well, no, we have to run the system the same way across the state. So on some things. He's very strict about that. On others, he's like, well, it's up to the counties. However, they you know, decide they want to do it. Uh, speaking of Raffensperger, uh, my good friend there, uh, after uh, successfully, you mentioned this, uh, sending out absentee ballot request forms to all active registered voters. And, of course, uh, Raffensperger gets to uh, define what active is there in the state. But he sent out uh, absentee uh, requests to most voters back in the June primaries. The program received high marks from voting rights advocates. He has now announced that he will not send absentee request forms to all state voters in advance of the general election, even though you're expecting a record, I think, 5 million voters uh, to turn out this year. And as the virus is much worse now in Georgia than it was during the June primaries. And yet he's telling people, well, you're on your own. If you want an absentee ballot, uh, you can figure out how to request one. Uh, Your thoughts on that, uh, Aklima? That does not help voters in the least. So to, to offer all voters an absentee ballot application, by the way, without any infrastructure in place to receive them, to process, and then to send them back, and then to receive them again from voters. There was no clear defined process for how counties were going to manage all of these absentee ballot applications being sent out, which means it was already doomed to fail. So... The, the reason why so many civil rights organizations gave high marks for this, because it gives more access to voters. Sending everybody absentee ballot applications is a good thing. The way that the Secretary of State's office went about doing it was the wrong way to do it. It's a lot like blaming perfectly fine ingredients for a recipe that you don't want to adjust for those ingredients. You don't go ahead and throw out those quality ingredients because you don't like how the recipe is. You need to adjust the recipe. And so for these ballot applications, we needed to adjust our election recipe. We needed to change the way that we uh, would receive and process absentee ballot applications. But instead of doing that, Secretary of State's office decided to do away with it all together and then leave the voters on their own. So what does that mean? To start out the year by giving everybody uh, an opportunity to request an absentee ballot without having to think anything about it. And I will, I will also touch on that inactive voter piece because we need to also make very clear that um, one really powerful way for a voter to become active again is to have some kind of communication with their county office, Mm -hmm. which means if Secretary of State Raffensperger wanted all voters to, to vote, as he has said many times, that means that everybody would have received that absentee ballot application because Mm -hmm. inactive voters through that contact with their county by sending that application back would have then become active voters if that was the only issue there them not having contact with that with that office so there was a clear opportunity to engage with more voters there that the secretary of state's office merely let pass so even Mm -hmm. though it appeared as though his actions were to engage with more voters and get more people, you know, out to vote. That is a fantastic thing. There was no infrastructure in place to allow for the effective and timely and correct 
processing of those absentee ballot applications, and he left out a large segment of the population that could have used those absentee ballot applications to become active voters once more. Raffensperger has proven very good at doing the least amount possible to try to uh, maintain some form of credibility. I will say this, uh, the upside of all of these years of voter suppression in Georgia is that you guys have some of the best election integrity advocates and voting right advocates in the country. Aklima, you are one of them. Thank you for joining us today to explain this. I'm glad that you and uh, so many others on the ground there in Georgia uh, are, are, are in uh, this good fight. I wish uh, we could clone about 1,000, 10,000 of you around the country. Aklima <laughs> Kondokar is the Georgia State Director for AllVotingIsLocal.org. You can find them on the Twitters at Voting is Local. And you can find Aklima on the Twitters at Aklima Votes. Really appreciate you joining us today, Aklima. Please stay in touch uh, as everything moves forward and as we continue to cover the great battleground state of Georgia. Absolutely. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, we have got to go. I know I'm running (laughs) late as usual. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can download our programs anytime for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 